You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer, and I use she, her pronouns. Over the years, the performance of Ruby has improved quite a bit. One of the big recent performance improvements came from the development of YJIT inside Shopify. YJIT is a just-time compiler for Ruby written in Rust. Today's guest is Dr. Maxime Chevalier, who uses she, her pronouns and worked on YJIT. Maxine obtained a PhD in compiler design at the University de Montreal and worked on the Apple GPU compiler team before joining Shopify, where she started a project to build Widget, a new just-in-time compiler built inside CRuby. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So this is an interesting topic, thinking about just-in-time compilation. Widget is something that's very new. I know listeners are very excited to know more about it, and they're very curious about it. Can we maybe start with what is just-in-time compilation? What's the point of it? And how does it improve performance? Right. So I guess I'm going to assume that most of your listeners know what compilation is. But just as a refresher, yeah. programmers write source code in a programming language that's usually meant to kind of resemble English. So it has some typically English-sounding keywords. It's meant to be human-readable. And then the compiler is a tool that translates source code into machine code, machine code being like zeros and ones that's executed by your CPU, by your microprocessor. So a compiler is a program that kind of like does the bridge between programmers and computers and kind of like enables modern day programming, so to speak. And JIT compilation is just-in-time compilation. So basically, the most basic way to think about it is that you can wait as long as possible to compile the program. So if you take a programming language like Ruby or Python, those languages were originally interpreted. So there's like a program that the interpreter that will execute the program without compiling it. But if you want the program to run fast, you want to translate that program into machine code. And then that's the job of the JIT compiler. So the JIT compiler is going to basically translate that program into machine code as it's running. And typically that's done in a fashion that lazy. So basically, a JIT compiler is only going to compile functions that are actually executed by your program. And there's multiple reasons why that's the case. One reason is that compilation takes time. And in a JIT compilation context, the time that your machine takes to compile code is time that could be used to actually execute the program. So you don't want the JIT compiler to slow down the program. So the JIT compiler is trying to compile as little code as possible. And then there's kind of like another angle to that, which is that the longer you wait to generate machine code, the more information you have. So in particular, JIT compilers try to perform optimizations based on types, for example. And so if a JIT compiler is able to delay compiling a function until the function is actually called, then it can do special tricks like look at the types of the arguments that come into the function and generate specialized machine code based on those types. So I have a bit of a question then. Does that mean that maybe this leads us into a conversation about YJIT specifically? But does that mean that when we're doing just-in-time compilation in Ruby, that if we have some sort of assurance about the types that YJIT or another JIT implementation is better able to do those sort of optimizations? Like, for example, if you were using Sorbet or the Ruby 3 type system or something. At the moment, that's not the case. So this is also kind of like a research topic, so to speak. Like people in academia have done some amount of research on 
mixing just-in-time compilers with gradual typing. But the bottom line, as far as I know, like the consensus so far, is that the type annotations that programmers want to put into gradual typing and the type information that JIT compiler can leverage don't exactly match. If you want to add type annotations to your program, typically that will add a little bit of overhead and the JIT compiler doesn't necessarily need that information to optimize your program. So maybe let's talk about YJIT specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about the development of YJIT? Like how did the development start and what were the sort of primary motivations as you were working on it? Well, I took a job at Shopify about three and a half years ago. And at the time, Shopify already had the team that was working on Truffle Ruby, which was a project that had already been kind of ongoing for several years. And Truffle Ruby had some really impressive peak performance numbers, but they were struggling to get to a point where they were able to deploy Truffle Ruby into production. Well, Shopify is a big tech company with really, really big Ruby deployments. We use Ruby on Rails and Rack and uh, other frameworks based on Ruby internally. And so we want Ruby to perform really, really well. But yet there were some challenges with deploying Truffle Ruby into production, part due to memory usage and in part due to the amount of time that it takes to boot and also because of compatibility. Don't want to make it sound like I'm bashing Truffle Ruby because I think they've actually done a great job in multiple aspects. And in terms of like Ruby compatibility, they're actually really strong. But there's kind of like an alternative implementation challenge, so to speak, which is not unique to Ruby. So taking a step back, in the Python community, there's CPython and there's also PyPy. So the PyPy project has been going on for many, many years, and they've built a JIT compiler for Python that has some really good performance numbers. But the problem is that CPython is kind of like a moving target, so they keep evolving the language really fast. And so there's like some amount of incompatibility between CPython and PyPy in terms of the Python packages. And what that does is that even though PyPy performs really, really well, almost nobody uses it because they don't have 100% compatibility with the reference implementation. And then in the Lua community, there's the reference Lua implementation and there's LuaJIT, which is really, really highly regarded. But again, it's like LuaJIT doesn't have perfect compatibility with Lua. So people don't really use it as much as they could. And then in the Ruby community, there's CRuby. And then there's Truffle Ruby, which has really high peak performance, but doesn't have 100% compatibility. So that discourages people from using it. And then there's concerns about usage, et cetera. So when I joined Shopify, I suggested that maybe if we invested a little bit of effort, we could kind of like build a prototype JIT inside of CRuby which wouldn't have the same peak performance as something like Truffle Ruby. But the idea was that we could start basically with like 100% compatibility from the start, which would be like a huge advantage for adoption because it would be able to run like all of our software from almost from day one. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like really you wanted to gain these benefits that you could get in these other implementations, but natively and on the latest version of Ruby. I know I don't have a lot of experience with Truffle Ruby, but I know... I've used JRuby in the past and some of the like the version of CRuby was two something and then the JRuby like the version of the spec that it was at was a few versions behind perpetually and that can be tricky cuz when you're developing you have to keep that difference in mind. So YJIT is written in Rust and I'm kind of curious can you talk a little bit about why you chose Rust? 
Sure. So originally we had made a conscious choice to write widget in C because that's the language that CRuby is written in. And so we started writing widget from the start with the hope that eventually it would be upstreamed into CRuby. Like we didn't have any guarantees what happened. And we started by writing widget in like a Shopify fork of CRuby. But we wanted to design it so that it would be easy to upstream eventually. And so we had chosen to, to write in C. But what we found is that as the complexity of widget was increasing, we were a little bit disappointed. We felt like it was challenging to maintain the C code because my personal feeling, and I think this is shared by the widget team, is that C doesn't offer a lot of tools to manage complexity. There, there are no modules. There are no classes. There are no interfaces or anything like that. And the only facility that you have in C for metaprogramming is macros. Eventually, at some point, we wanted to write an ARM64 backend. So we had like an x86-64 backend for Intel and AMD CPUs, but we wanted a separate backend for Apple hardware and you know Raspberry Pis and all of the ARM chips. But then we were faced with just like, the only tools that we have to do that is C macros. And we started sketching out the code a little bit, but it was quickly getting really, really messy. And so one of my teammates, Alan Wu, suggested that we could rewrite it in Rust. And there's a little bit of debate going on. I think we were all enthusiastic about the prospect that Rust would offer us better tools to manage the growing complexity. But at that point, there was no Rust code in CRuby. And so it was a little bit contentious as in like, it seems very feasible to rewrite widget in Rust, but then uh, is that going to get us kicked out of, of CRuby or something like that? So we had some discussions, like we opened a ticket on um, Redman, which is the issue tracker. But eventually, Matt gave his blessing to go with that, as long as we made widget kind of optional so that CRuby will still build in your machine if you don't have the Rust toolchain installed. But you need to have the Rust toolchain installed in order to build widget. But kind of like a compromise that we had on the widget side is that we froze the Rust dependency at 1.58. And the reason we do that is because we know that the latest Ubuntu and Debian don't necessarily have like the latest version of Rust. So we don't want to force that. Kind of curious about this. How does the like interaction between CRuby and Widget work mechanically? Okay, so... <laughs> this is maybe a little in the weeds, but I'm just satisfying my own curiosity, I guess. The way that it works... We expose a number of C functions and constants on the CRuby side, and we also expose a number of functions on the Rust side. So there's kind of like an API between the two. And on the Rust side, we use a tool called bindgen to expose a number of internal CRuby functions and definitions that we can call from Rust. Okay, awesome. So it sounds like that part is maybe not as tricky as I might have guessed. I feel like it's pretty tricky because there's quite a few functions and it's kind of like widget needs to be aware of the way that Ruby objects are laid out in memory and the way that arrays and strings are laid out in memory. So it's dependent on a lot of low-level details. So recently, there's also been a project, a separate JIT implementation called RJIT. Can you talk about what the difference is between YJIT and RJIT? Sure. RJIT is Takashi Kokobun's side project to build a Ruby JIT in pure Ruby and as part of the RJIT project, he's taken some of the YJIT code base and ported it into Ruby code. Also, at the moment, like the way that we think about RJIT is that it's more of an experimental or educational platform for people who might want to play with JIT compiler design. 
but the performance is not necessarily the same and the stability is not necessarily the same either. It's also only got support for x86-64 at the moment. So it sounds like YJIT is definitely the way people should go if they like looking at some just-in-time compilation inside Ruby. It's definitely the better supported. I would say like one advantage that you would have with RJIT is that do not have the Rust dependency. Is there any chance that YJIT could be enabled by default in a future CRuby version? That's kind of an ongoing discussion. I saw that DHH co-founder of Rails posted on Twitter and he said, hey, Matt, you should uh, make it so YJIT is enabled by default. There's some hesitation on the part of Maths and on the part of the Ruby core developers. And the reason for that is that enabling YJIT increases memory usage a bit. And I feel the need to defend YJIT a little bit in that respect, because the truth is that every JIT compiler incurs some amount of memory overhead. If you use the JVM, it has quite a bit of memory overhead. And if you look at how much memory like your Chrome tabs are using, let's see. This tab is using 314 <laughs> megs of RAM, and a lot of that is probably because of the JavaScript JIT. So it's kind of a question of expectations. I think other languages have kind of accepted that the language is going to be JITted and that this is necessary for performance and that this comes with a memory usage trade-off. But Ruby is still kind of like interpreted by default and people find it difficult to accept maybe that Wajit has this amount of memory overhead. Another thing that I've heard people say, though, is that Many people who use Ruby will be deploying Ruby on Rails on like Heroku instances that might only have 512 megabytes of RAM. And in situations like that, if YJIT is going to use an extra 100 or even 150 megabytes of RAM or something, that could be challenging for these kinds of deployments. So ultimately, it's a personal choice if you want to use YJIT or not. Yeah. It sounds like everything in software, whether you use it or not, depends a lot on your circumstances and constraints of the environment that you're going to be deploying in. Yeah. I know we've talked a lot about performance is the main sort of advantage here. Are there other advantages to Wajit? And can you maybe like talk about the performance advantages? Is it easy to quantify? Sure. Well, I think performance is obviously like the main thing that we're going for. In terms of quantifying it, we have a web page at speed.wajit.org where we keep track of a number of benchmarks and this is a suite of benchmarks that we've been putting together since the inception of YJIT. The main category of benchmarks that we track are all things that we think could be relevant for people who might use Ruby kind of like in a web context or like in a context that's maybe similar to Shopify. Like you can see we have things on there like Active Record, Chunky PNG, Hexa PDF, which is like PDF encoding and decoding, Liquid, which is like our Shopify template language. We've also turned the entirety of the Lobsters, like Lobster.rs website, into a Rails benchmark. <laughs> and there's also Ruby LSP, which is the language server. What is the experience around using Rust? One of the things that I've heard is that it's got a challenging on-ramp for learning the language, but then once you learn the language, you end up with like a huge productivity benefit on the other side. I think Rust is definitely not an easy language to learn. Like, it's definitely true. Like the learning curve is steep. And personally, the first language that I seriously spent some amount of effort learning was C++. I came from a systems programming background. You know, I was already familiar with pointers and where's arithmetic and things like that. And also like pattern matching, etc. But Rust is extremely strict. 
it's got a lot of restrictions. Some of them come from the borrow checker and some of them come from the very like rigid type system. I think some other times you kind of like know your way around the language and also understand how the borrow checker works. I have mixed feelings about Rust personally. Okay. Like, are we going to get like a hot take? (laughs) Would you like a hot take? Sure. I like hot takes. Okay. So I think there are a number of things that Rust does quite well. Like I think part of the popularity of Rust comes from the fact that it has a really good build system and a really good package manager and people like it. That's something that's missing in C++, for example. Also, C++ has become like a huge mess (laughs) if people want to run away from it. So there's a number of things in Rust that work really well. Also, the pattern matching syntax is cool. Option types, non-nullability. I think the way that Rust does exceptions without exceptions is pretty cool, right? Like with the, the result types. What is that? Not super familiar with Rust, like actually developing in Rust. What does that mean? What's the exceptions without exceptions thing? It's able to like encode in a type system that like a function can return either like a valid result or some kind of error type. Oh. And yeah, and then it has a special syntax kind of like with the question mark where you can call a function and it's going to try to automatically unwrap the result type. And if it's an error, it will kind of like propagate the error upstream. That's kind of cool. That's like very cool, actually. It's a- <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely pretty neat. One of the things that I don't like about Rust, though, is the borrow checker. I'm going to get a lot of hate for <laughs> saying this, but... <laughs> we don't have to go there if you don't want to. <laughs> I'll say it anyways. It happens pretty often that you have to rewrite your code because the borrow checker is not able to cope with it. You write code that is perfectly valid, but it doesn't satisfy the constraint what the borrow checker understands. And so you have to rewrite the code in a way that the borrow checker understands it. Okay. So it's like forcing you to write in a specific way. Well, it's like sometimes you have to play specific tricks. You have to like move a certain thing from one place to another so that you can have two mutable references at the same time and then move the thing back again and things like that. And also like it doesn't automatically promote integers. Only allows you to do like array indexing with U size. But if you have like an integer that's like smaller than U size, it's not going to like automatically promote it to the larger bit width, even though it's like completely safe to do this automatically, but Rust will not do it automatically. And it just adds a, a lot of syntactic noise everywhere. Well, thank you so much for the hot takes. And like, we're going to wade into some programming language controversy. So aside from the memory sort of consideration that we talked about before, it seems like enabling widgets, as long as you've got the memory, it would be a net benefit. Is there a reason why you wouldn't enable widget? aside from memory considerations? We do a lot of benchmarking on our end and we have multiple internal deployments. Shopify, like it's deployed on the storefront render infrastructure, which is infrastructure like every time you visit a website. We also have some internal deployments and we have a pretty big suite of benchmarks. And basically for us, as far as we can see from our internal deployments, YJIT is faster everywhere. But we've had some reports in the wild from people telling us that YJIT was not speeding up their production deployments. So unfortunately, there might be cases where you might not see a speed up. So it's pretty easy to enable it. And for you to try it out, you should measure and verify. How do people enable widget? There's kind of like three separate ways to enable widget. One is you can just say like Ruby dash dash widget with your other command line options. We've also added an environment variable where you can say export 
Ruby underscore YJ underscore enable equals one. The reason for the environment variable is that sometimes it's easier for people to work with their deployment scripts with the environment variable rather than passing dash dash YJ. And also, as of Ruby 3.3, you can enable YJ at runtime. You can say Ruby VM colon colon YJ dot enable. So that allows you to enable YJ dynamically. And there's kind of like two use cases for that. One use case is that if you're working with like a forking server, you can enable YJ like a subset of your Unicode workers, for example. But the second use case is also that you can enable widget after your app is done booting. This is because often when your app is booting, there's some amount of code that only gets run once to load a bunch of things into memory. And you want to avoid wasting time just compiling that code. So you can start up widget once you know that your server is like basically ready to start serving traffic. Let's say I run Ruby dash dash widget do I already have to have the Rust tool chain and all that stuff installed? Are you shipping a binary? Like, how is that working with Widget? So we don't ship a binary, but basically, when you build Ruby, as long as you have Rust C 1.58 or newer installed, it should automatically build Widget. So oh, that should happen as long as you have Rust C 1.58 or newer. No matter which tool you use to build Widget, it should be built automatically. But one easy way to check is you can do Ruby dash dash widget dash dash version, and it should show like plus widget in the Ruby version string in your console. Okay. And then is that just as long as it's in your path, as long as the Rust toolchain is in your path? Is that how it's checking? Normally, you only need Rust C installed while you're building Ruby. Okay. All right. Where can people go to learn more about widget? So there's a widget.org landing page. It's kind of like the easiest thing to remember. And on that page, we have a link to the widget readme, which gives you like most of the information that you need on how to build widget, how to enable widget, a little bit about the command line options, et cetera, et cetera. And we also have a link if you want to open an issue. If you run into any kind of problem, you can open an issue on the Shopify Ruby repository. And that way, like, you know, we're going to see it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show and teaching us about Widget. I know I was excited to learn a little bit more and for teaching me a little bit more about Rust. I also appreciate that. It was great having you. Thanks for having me and sorry for rambling. <laughs> no, you're perfect. This was great. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. It was a pleasure getting to talk with Maxime. You can find her on Twitter at Love2Code and on GitHub at MaximeCB, all lowercase, all one word. We're starting something new on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment about today's episode, send an email to comments at the Ruby on Rails podcast.com. You can include a text comment or attach a file from voice memos or Google recorder, and we'll respond to some of them in a future show. Thanks to Paul, our wonderful editor over at Peachtree Sound for making us sound like professionals. And thank you for listening. You're a gem. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.